of our hearts now be found acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> we are in, um, pardon me, I, my voice still is not quite where it used to be. I've found that uh, when I talk for a while, like in class, and I don't say much, then for about 15 minutes it kind of goes away. So I want to talk amongst yourselves for a moment. <laughs> <clears throat> it's going to look tacky, but I'm going to leave it here nonetheless. We're in week four of our current message series called The Great Adventure. We're learning to live like people of God, and to be honest, it's not all that easy. God calls all of us to become what uh, we were created to be, and the gap between where we are now and where God would like us to be, well, that's the adventure in between those two. We've been using episodes from the life of David. You just heard Matt read one to you this morning. We're examining various parts of that adventure. Uh, we have taken a look at, you know, what the adventure was about, you know, how God forms us, how God shapes us to be his people. Now, with that being said, today I want to start with Tiger Woods. Go to the next screen. Tiger Woods. We're all pretty familiar with what's going on with Tiger Woods' life lately, but I want to share some words that someone had to say about him. It's his caddy. His caddy's name is Steve Williams. He's shown there with Tiger Woods. And he said that, uh, I wouldn't say that I'm mad at Tiger. I'm disappointed that he let his family down. I mean, I'm close with his wife, and he's got two lovely children, and he's let them down as well. And then Williams went on to say, and you see it up here, I would never walk away from a true friend because you don't leave them when someone needs you. After all, that's what friends are for. That's the theme of today's message. That's what friends are for. Friends are there for you and with you, in the tough times of life. Now, most of you probably were very familiar with that story about David's sin involving Bathsheba that you heard before. It results not only in adultery, but it also continues with murder. And though these were dark pages in David's record, they were preserved so that lessons could be learned by other people, those people being you and I. They are lessons to be learned not only from David's mistakes, but from the rebuke that Nathan gave him. Nathan was a true friend. Nathan was bold enough to call David on the carpet for what he'd done. After all, that's what friends are for. Although I'm sure most of us would not really like somebody who would come up to us, shove his finger in your face, and say, you are the man. We wouldn't like that. We wouldn't like that. It would probably, we might be resentful or we might be afraid or whatever. But found in 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan's rebuke is going to kind of serve today as the basis for our study together. And we're going to learn several lessons this morning. And the first of these several lessons that we can glean from this is this. We are often blind to our own faults. Now, in the case of David, 
He could easily see that sin of that man. Remember the sin of the man? Nathan tells him that story about how a guy had that, that little sheep. He loved the little sheep, slept with the little sheep, drank from his cup. But a guy with all these big sheep came and, you know, took that little bitty sheep rather than using one of his own, offers it up. And, and David, when David heard that, remember what David said? David burned with rage. David said, this man ought to die. This man ought to pay back four times the amount. See, David could easily see the sin in someone else's life. But he could not see it in his own life. It took that direct accusation from Nathan. You are the man. You're the one, David, that I'm talking about. You're the one who stole that sheep from that guy. You're the one who took the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Let me suggest to you, friends, that in our case, this is often true as well. We often are able to see what that little speck that's in other people's eyes. We kind of do that sometimes, even in church, during communion. We kind of watch people as they walk up here. And we kind of check them out. We scope them out. And sometimes, if we are brutally honest with ourselves, what are we doing? We're spotting the, the speck, it says, in other people's eyes. But guess what? We're failing to see the big log in our own. There are probably a number of reasons why we do this, I mean, above and beyond sin. But sometimes we let the strong desires of our life confuse the plain distinction between right and wrong. Let me give you an example. I think many people have softened their views on divorce and remarriage especially when it hits close to home. Now, if it's not in their household, they can be pretty condemning. But once it comes home, then they soften their view. We may refuse to apply principles of Scripture also to the moral nature of our personal conduct. You know, we fail to think sometimes whether or not certain habits are consistent with the Christian lifestyle. And as a result, sometimes we behave more like we are children of this world then we are children of God. And because of that, we are often blind to our own faults. That's why I say we need to be thankful to have a friend like Nathan. I almost called this sermon, Everybody Needs a Nathan. And I, I honestly believe that. You need somebody in your life who cares enough about you to bring your faults to your attention. You need somebody in your life who's courageous enough to challenge your conduct. See, we need to be like David. We need to be open to the constructive criticism. And I, I use that word constructive, not destructive, but constructive criticism of others and not so blind so that we don't see our faults when pointed out by other people. There's another valuable lesson we can learn from Nathan's rebuke, and it's this, the best ways to bring about repentance. There are kind of three steps we learn in this little story. Uh, one of them, we need to appeal to God's love. You know, in this story, Nathan reminded David of his great kindness. I mean, David, come on, think about it. God has given you everything a man could want. He even tells David, look... He, You've got all, you had all of these wives to begin with. You had all of this treasure. You had this wonderful palace. You're the king of Israel. You're my chosen man. 
David, just look at how much I have lavished on you. He reminds David of his great kindness. Now, this appeal, based on God's love and mercy, is, is always found in the preaching of the gospel. I love what Paul said to the Romans in chapter 2, verse 4. He said, Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, his tolerance, his patience, not realizing God's kindness leads you to repentance? See, in our efforts to save or to restore other people, let's be sure that we also make that same appeal to God's great love. The second thing we need to do, though, sometimes is actually reveal the sin. I mean, Nathan was very, very clear in telling David what he did wrong. And in a similar way, the gospel makes it clear that we are all sinners. I mean, you all know that passage from Romans chapter 3, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And since some people will not repent unless they realize they're sinners, it's often our job as friends. It's necessary to help them see their sins. But let me remind you, we need to do that with the right attitude. And that is, of course, speaking the truth to people in love. We also need to be able to share and warn of the consequences. I mean, here again, Nathan spells out very clearly what's going to happen because of David's sin. I mean, what he says is going to happen because of his sin is really pretty brutal. And again, while the gospel contains the good news, there's also a warning. I think of the last verses of Mark's gospel when he said, go into the entire world and do what? Preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized, he says, will be saved. But then he adds, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And as we seek to call other people to repentance, we must in love and great solemnity, point out the consequences of sin. There's another lesson we can learn here from Nathan's rebuke, and that's the proper attitude in repentance. And here again, David gives us a, a proper example. He makes it very personal. David says, I have sinned. He does not try to put the blame on anybody else. He doesn't put the blame on Bathsheba. Like, I mean, he didn't go around and say, well, you know, if she wouldn't have been walking around naked in her backyard, this wouldn't have happened. Uh, he, he didn't blame it on the builders who built the, his palace and said, you know, if they wouldn't have built the, the top floor so high, I wouldn't have been able to look in people's backyards. He doesn't try to split, spread the guilt around, for, for example, saying, well, it wasn't really me who killed Uriah. It was Joab and those other filthy Ammonites that were at war with each other. Kind of reminds me one time when I accidentally on purpose uh, threw a rock through a window and it broke. The unfortunate thing when I accidentally did that on purpose, uh, somebody saw me. And, you know, growing up in a small town of Seward, Nebraska, <laughs> it doesn't take long before what people see, they tell. Kind of like a small church. <laughs> and uh, they told my grandma and grandpa. Well, when I got called on the carpet by my grandpa, he said, I understand you broke a window over at so-and-so's house. Well, thinking like a normal young person, I said, Grandpa, it was not me that broke that window. Now, I'm thinking... It was the rock that did it. But it was not 
me who actually did it. But David saw the true nature of his guilt. He said, I did it. He accepted full responsibility of his guilt. And then he saw the true nature of his guilt. He said, I sinned, and guess what? I sinned against the Lord. Now, while it's true that he sinned against Bathsheba, he sinned against Uriah the Hittite, he sinned against his own wife, I should probably say wives, because he had plenty of them. But see, true penitence comes from an understanding that sin is more than just a violation of human relationships. Sin, friends, I don't care what kind of sin you commit, it is still a personal affront to Jesus. I mean, it's an affront against the God who created us in his own image. But then notice what what David writes in Psalm 51. We're going to take a closer look at Psalm 51 next week, but he says, against you, you only have I sinned. Now, sadly, much repentance today falls way short in this regard. We often don't make our sins personal enough. In fact, I sometimes wonder whether people actually repent of any sins other than on a Sunday morning when the pastor leads them in kind of a general confession of sins. And then even then, sometimes we kind of gloss over those and just say, you know, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto thee all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended thee. And we just, we don't really name sins. We just know that we kind of sinned out there somewhere. Now, we're very quick to say, yeah, we sinned. But we're not always as quick to say, I sinned. It was me. Or even more, we're very reluctant sometimes to say, I have sinned by saying this. Or I have sinned by doing this. Or I have sinned by failing to respond this way. And I think that's because we often don't really think of our sins as being against the Lord. We kind of think our sins are against other people. You know, well, I sassed my mom. I mean, so my sin is against my mom. Or I talk rudely to my husband as if the sin was against my husband. Or I, I gossiped with this other person, and so it's just between that person and me. But unless we do understand that our sins are against the Lord, our repentance is likely to be shallow at best. Our conduct sometimes changes only enough to satisfy the approval of man. But if we're only concerned about being faithful in the eyes of other people, we will only correct our conduct, correct the conduct that other people can see. But see, if we come to know and understand that we have sinned against the Lord, we will be concerned with being faithful in his eyes because our conduct, visible and invisible, is seen by him. The next observation may be the most encouraging one uh, gleaned from Nathan's rebuke. It's this. It's, it's the pardon provided by God. As devastating as sin can be in the ownership of sin, the good side of it is that pardon is provided by God. And here again, we, we learn from the example of David, his forgiveness. We read in the story that his forgiveness was immediate. 
I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan very quickly says, you know, the Lord does not hold this against you. Now, his forgiveness was immediate, but also understand there were some conditions that needed to be met. And in this case, it was the confession of his sin. And then his forgiveness was complete. Nathan said, the Lord has done what? He has put away your sin. He's put away your sin. We just finished a class, See Through the Scriptures, and one of the last lessons had to do with communion. And I was thinking about this because I know we are coming to the Lord's table today. But it is said that when you come to communion and the announcement that your sins indeed are forgiven says to you that you ought to walk away from the table and never talk about those sins again. Why? Because they're forgiven. They're set aside. It also says that when you come up here with the gathering of believers and they too have come up to receive the precious body and blood of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that it offers, you are not free to talk about their sins anymore either because their sins too have been forgiven. The Lord has put them away. There are a lot of other terms in the Bible the same thing. It says he's covered our sins. And sometimes that, that referred to the blood that was spread over the sins. It, they were blotted out. They are remembered no more. I remember somebody said one time, when God forgives your sins, he buries them in the deepest part of the ocean. And then he puts up a sign that says no fishing. Because the devil would like to have us go back and pull those sins up again and revisit them. Sometimes our friends like to remind us of the past. But as someone has said, too, that when the devil comes to remind you of your past, remind him of his future. See, God's pardon is similar today. God's pardon to us, friends, is immediate and it is complete. But understand that there are also some conditions to be met. For the non-Christian, for that person who does not know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, it means accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior. In John chapter 8, 24, it says, I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. If you don't believe that, Jesus said, that I am the one, you will die in your sins. But for the Christian... For those of us who gather here today who call ourselves Christ followers, it means confessing our sins. I mean, one of my favorite Bible passages is 1 John 1, verse 9. I love that verse. It says very simply that if we confess our sins, if we own up to our sins, if we say, I have sinned, I have sinned in this way, I have sinned against you, Lord. If we do that, what happens? It says, He, God, is faithful. And he is just, and he will forgive us our sins, and he will purify us from all unrighteousness. What a wonderful deal. I mean, such wonderful pardon is made possible only through the blood of Jesus Christ. One Bible passage that I read early this morning, in fact, the Bible passage struck me so much in my today's reading that I posted it on my Facebook page. Because I, I just want to share that verse with other people. It comes from the book of Ephesians, the first chapter, the seventh verse, where it says, In him we have 
redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. What a wonderful thing it is to have the pardon and the forgiveness of God's sin through Jesus' blood. But there's one final observation. This may be the most sobering one for us to contemplate. It's this. Consequences of sin often follow despite pardon. And guess what, friends? David learned this truth from Nathan. Even though his sins were forgiven, there were still consequences of his sin. I mean, Nathan listed them out for you, and they all came to pass. I mean, the baby conceived between him and Bathsheba in that adulterous relationship died. David's daughter, Tamar, was raped by her half-brother, Ammon. One of his sons, Ammon, was killed by another one, by the, the other brother, Absalom. His brother, David's son, Absalom, actually led a conspiracy against his father, took over his kingdom, and did exactly what, what Nathan said, slept with his concubines in full view of everybody else, and even that son is finally killed. Friends, we need to understand the same is often true today. I mean, alcoholic may quit drinking and may be forgiven for all the things that are involved in that, but they still may suffer the physical consequences of that alcoholism. Or I think of young people who may sow their wild oats before ever settling down and becoming Christians. That's what they think. Sow my wild oats now while I'm young. And while forgiven for whatever they've done, they still may have to reap what they have sown. I mean, it's very possible that the rest of their lives could be adversely affected by such things as unexpected pregnancies or an early unwanted marriage or unscriptural divorces or, you know, a moment of passion followed by a lifetime of sexually transmitted diseases. You think about experimenting with drugs that even though you may be forgiven for that at some time may lead to irreversible brain damage. All I'm saying, friends, is that God's pardon is wonderful. But let us not ever forget the consequences of sin. I mean, such are the lessons of, that we learn from Nathan's rebuke. We learn that we are often blinded by our own sin. We learn also, though, the best way to bring about repentance. We learn about the proper attitude we should have to understand that I have sinned and that I have sinned against the Lord and to understand the wonderful pardon that God gives us, but to understand still that the consequences of sin often follow that. All of those events and so many more like that are recorded in God's word. These are lessons to help us in our own relationship with the Lord. I am sure today if we would talk to one another one-on-one -on -one for a while, there would be things that we could share with each other that we would not want anyone else to know about. Sins that we have done in the past. Sins that we maybe have not even addressed yet, but maybe should. To lay them before the Lord, because the Lord does what? Forgives and cleanses. We need to understand that about our loving God. And once we've experienced that, and I think many of us here have, I, mean, I think of myself, I 
I hesitate to think sometimes about some of the things that I did in my growing up years. Things that were, at the time I convinced myself, were only sins against other people, but were really sins against God. And when, like that prodigal son in front of the trough, remember it said, and when he came to his senses, when I came to my senses and I returned back to the Father's house, I learned some lessons. Now, what do you do with the lessons that you learn in life? Now, I was a teacher for many years, and one thing they taught us was that the best way for you to learn something is to do what? Teach somebody else. The question is, friends, can you be such a friend to someone else like Nathan? Oh, you may not want to use that approach that he did where you just march in and, and poke your finger in somebody's face and say, Derek, you're the man, or anything like that. But could you, with all gentleness and love and humility, knowing the power of God's forgiveness, be caring enough and courageous enough to speak that word of rebuke to someone you care about? After all, I think that's what friends are for. Let's pray.